Welcome everybody to the Adventure Audio Podcast. This episode is featuring a conversation with Marcus Leach, who is a adventure cyclist, ultra endurance athlete, uh, mountaineer. He has a really, really uh, wide um, depth of experience in a whole bunch of really, really cool adventures. He also has a, just a really great story about um, sort of finding his way into this life uh, right around his 30th birthday and sort of reinventing himself and going all in and really doubling down on his passions, which is a really, really cool and inspiring story. He's done a whole bunch of crazy stuff. He did, uh, I think he said three Everests this year, two of them on gravel, which is bonkers. Uh, He did that in the UK. A few years ago, he rode all three Grand Tours in the same year. So the Tour de France, Giro d'Italia, and the Volta Espana one day ahead of the Pro Peloton um, with uh, minimal support. So that's a pretty incredible feat. Uh, he's done a whole bunch of interesting things, um, including mountaineering, but we do get certainly more into the biking side of things. Um, but from a, from a rugby background as a kid um, and then sort of doing a typical 20-year-old deal with, uh, you know, just working and partying and then just sort of, uh, again, reinventing himself. And he tells a really great story about how that happened. So uh, we were very inspired by the conversation and we hope that you are too. Very cool. And we really appreciate Marcus um, sharing with us. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Spandex Pandex Collection, riding bikes inside postcards with friends across gentle rolling hills, stopping at cafes for a quick cappuccino. It's what we do. We enjoy our adventure no matter where the bicycle takes us. So what do we wear? In in Italy, they value style. What you wear represents who you are, what you believe in, and what your values are. Adventure fashion. Merino is a smart choice. It's soft on the skin, a natural material, and does not need to be washed as often as synthetic clothing. We love to ride our bikes and enjoy local culture no matter where we end up in the world. From adventures to appraise, they have you covered. What they learn from the past, they design in the future. Style designed for adventure. What else would you wear? The Spandex Panda Collection. Um, Spandex Panda is run by a old acquaintance of mine from Calgary. His name is Curtis Linton. And uh, they do really, really cool merino wool stuff from Italy. Spandex Panda Collection. Hope you can check that out. Very cool little company and uh, worth following along with. Um, also, he also does a whole bunch of really cool things with vintage bikes. So you got to check out the Spandex Panda, uh, even on Instagram. And you'll definitely, if you like this podcast, you will find something on there that you dig. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We really, really appreciate you coming back and spending time with us. We are making plans for 2021, uh, lots of podcasting, trying to put together some plans for later in the year when we hope we're in a safer spot. Um, uh, with COVID and vaccinations where we can get together with some of you and ride some bikes. So stay tuned on that. But we're looking at late August, last weekend of August, likely uh, somewhere in Western Canada, close to Tyler and I, because he's in Missoula and I'm in Calgary. So we're going to put together a bike ride and we hope that some of you can join us. So please stay tuned on that. Of course, as you are able to support the podcast, that is really greatly appreciated. So um, liking, sharing on social media and just passing it along by word of mouth. Thank you again. And on to Marcus Leach. How are, uh, how's the state of the world where you are right now with COVID? How's, uh, how, how are you and your family coping? Yeah. Um, it's good. We're in Wales in the UK. Um, so most of the stuff you probably hear in the news over there is 
from the from England, even though it's the UK government. Um, so where we are, we live in a rural area, not far from sort of some beautiful mountains, and it's it's pretty good. Um, we've we've not been affected, touch wood, the family by anything. Um, so no one's had any health issues to do with COVID. Uh, there's been a few other things going on this year, but. Uh, yeah, we've been very fortunate in that sense. So we're feeling very blessed as we head into Christmas that we're all healthy. I've got a little two-year-old and a five-year-old, and my five-year-old was off school for a while, um, which caused a bit of chaos because I work from home. <laughs> um, but no, everything's good, thanks. And and with you guys, yeah, same. We're we're um, navigating through it as best we can. We have one at home. So our, our government here, I live in Canada, I live in Calgary, Alberta, and our provincial government has decided to keep all junior high and high school students home. So my 13-year-old is home right now. Um, the two younger ones are still attending school. And, um, but we, we, have a, we have a lot of positive cases right now. Our cases are rising. So we've, we're basically in like a second kind of lockdown. Um, but you know, we're for, I'm, I am fortunate to live. I live on the edge of the city and kind of next to a forest and we're, it's very easy to still spend time outside and, you know, without seeing anybody at all, you can easily be 20 feet from anybody, any other soul that you see. So we're from that perspective, we're fortunate at, you know, I, I don't know, I, imagine living in the center of London or New York city or something like that through this, it would just be brutal. sisters and two of them are still in London and I just said I could not imagine the stress and the extra pressures of living in a city um, during during this period totally if you lived in a 400 square foot apartment I mean it would just be it would be crazy that was that's been our our blessing this year our, our savior is that every time there's been a lockdown um, and we've had two of them in Wales and even out of lockdown is you know Within 200 meters of my front door on my bike, I'm into little country lanes. We've got woods and hills and mountains and rivers and streams. And we've been able to do something every day with the children and be outdoors. I mean, and then I've got friends who live in London who have just been trapped. Yeah, it's crazy. So, you know, everybody's dealing with it, I think, as best they can. And, and uh, hopefully, I mean, in, well, in the UK, they started vaccinating this week, didn't they? They did, um, which has been interesting. Um, I'm sure. I, I, I've got mixed views on it because, you know, the vaccine on one hand is great, but we still don't know enough about it for me to be putting my hand up to say, yes, please. Right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can be I can be fourth or fifth in line and, and that's, yeah. that's fine. That's fine. We've come we're, we're just super sensible. We, we take lots of precautions. We socially distance. We wear face masks. We hand sanitize. We do click and collect shopping. So and we, yeah. we keep away from people as much as possible, apart from we're allowed to bubble with my parents who live nearby so we can help them. Um, so I'm happy just to keep living that life. Yes, my international travel is restricted, but we have a motorhome so we can go across into Europe next year in a portable bubble. So I'm happy to keep living like that for however long I need to. Yeah, like that's I said that to my wife and to my kids just the other day is that like now that we know that this vaccine's coming like let's not like let's just let's keep really really safe here and just get to the other side of this thing because what we do, now now we really don't want to get covid because who knows what the long term 
health implications are. And I'm sure that we'll find things out in five or 10 years from now that, oh, if you had COVID, you're more likely to, you know, X, Y, Z, right? So yeah, we just want to, we just want to continue to get through it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. first and foremost, we wanted so, to check in on you and your family. I know you had some kids, so we wanted to touch yeah, base on no, that. Yeah, we're, no, we're all good, thanks. We're, we're just in excitement phase at the moment with Christmas yeah. coming up. And oh, yeah. we're still at that wonderful stage where the magic of Christmas is very, very much alive. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, we're just looking forward to it. We're, we're, we're set for the, for the coming year in terms of work and what we want to do. And we're just able to now just relax and enjoy the coming weeks. Oh, that's, that's excellent. Nice. Very really good nice. to hear. So, Marcus, did you grow up there in Wales? Um, kind of moved around a little bit. Um, I was over in England. Um, uh, my parents split up when I was fairly young, so we, we moved yeah. around a little bit with, within England. Um, and then my parents moved back to Wales at the same time that I came to university in Wales. Um, and then I left uh, Cardiff and went to live in Cape Town in South Africa. Wow. As, as a as a rugby journalist so I was there for almost three years and then I traveled from <laughs> traveled from Cape Town at the bottom of Africa all the way back to the UK without taking a single flight so I wow I, I hitchhiked I walked I rode a bike um, I rode horses and camel I did all sorts I just didn't get on an airplane and I got my whole way through Africa the Middle East and Europe in uh, 14 months I think it was <laughs> Uh, wow and then wow. uh yeah and then ended up in london for for my sins but i met my wife there and we moved back to wales three years ago because we were leaving the the, the city every weekend we were leaving the city to go out into the countryside to go walking to be outdoors to be more closer to nature uh and we had a we had our first child harrison and we just got to the stage where we said why are we doing this why don't we make the countryside our permanent home <laughs> Um, so we moved here, yeah, just over three years ago now. And we're very fortunate that my parents live nearby. Um, and my mum is very much a, you know, she's a young gran. You know, she's only 59 yeah. and she's got two grandkids and she's very active with them and loves being around them. So it's it's worked perfectly. Oh, That's lucky awesome. For, yeah, lucky for all of you. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so you're initially you're a rugby player, correct? Correct. And, uh, yeah. And, and then something happened. I don't know. Was it your trip back to the UK from um, South Africa? What happened? Yeah. Give us well, the origin yeah. story because you yeah. obviously, you know, rugby gives you a good athletic base, but it doesn't create the sense of adventure for mountaineering and ultra cycling that you have. So yeah. we'd like to hear yeah. that part of it. How did that all but, happen? But I'd also like to hear a little bit about your rugby story and like, yeah, totally. Let's hear yes. your story. So growing up as a little boy, rugby was my passion. I remember being seven eight nine and my granddad used to take me to uh, Twickenham which is the home of the England rugby team and we used to go and watch England play and I loved it it was my absolute passion I, my mum would always embarrass me by saying that I'd go to, to bed with a rugby ball instead of a teddy and it was all I wanted to do and then as I started going through the the, the different processes of selection and and things it started getting to a serious level where I got represented uh, Wales at a junior schoolboy level, what we call under 18s. Uh, then I went on to be selected for the Junior Rugby World Cup. So we went out to Chile and South America. And it was what I wanted to do. It was, I had my heart set on being a professional rugby player. And then I had a couple of injury setbacks with ACL injuries and needing reconstructions. 
And it left me at a crossroads in life where I was given an option of another ACL reconstruction. But if it went again, the possibility of something a lot more serious later in life, you know, you know, knee joint replacement or something. Uh, Or to to hang up my boots. And I think I was early 20s at that stage. So um, I decided to call it a day and realized there was maybe more to life looking at the bigger picture than, than just the short term and having another operation for the sake of playing sport. Yeah. Um, and at the time, it was really difficult because if you, you, you have your heart set on something, it's what has filled your life for so many years. And to suddenly have that taken away, it was, it was quite tough. And I think I went through a period afterwards of, uh, I wouldn't say denial, but just sort of drifting, not really entirely certain what it was that I wanted to do and in the background of all of that, I've, I've always loved the written words and I've always loved writing and storytelling. And so the journalism and the writing that I do now sort of dates back to then. Um, but there was a big period between ending the rugby and the second life, I call it, what I'm doing now. Um, and in that time, I, I lived in South Africa uh, I traveled obviously back through Africa. I spent some time in Germany. Um, I spent time in London, living the good life, going out, partying and, you know, doing all the things that 20 something year olds in London do who have got a decent job and a disposable income. Yeah, right. uh, and then I got to the stage where I wanted to, I wanted to make a change. I, I was overweight. Um, and had been drinking and partying. And I just thought to myself, you know, this isn't, this isn't where I see myself in five, 10 years time. Uh, and I'd always had this competitive element and fascination with really with, with the human potential, reading different books about people climbing mountains and great feats of endurance. And it always been this sort of like flame with inside. And I was approaching my 30th birthday and I just sort of made a decision that no, I need to, I need to make a change. And I remember it vividly because we're, we're on an aeroplane coming home from India. We've been on honeymoon, uh, my wife and myself, and we've been traveling around. And, and to say I ate my way around India would be an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> really? Um, you know, I love food. I always have done. And I ate everything I saw. Because I, I thought to myself, I don't know when I'm coming back to India, so I need to try everything. <laughs> and they have incredible food. Oh, it was absolutely amazing. You know, we'd have just eaten in a, in a lovely restaurant, like a little local restaurant, and I'd step outside and there'd be like a street hawker selling something. And I'd be like, okay, I need to eat those now. <laughs> But I remember sitting on the plane on the way home and everyone had had their meals. People were turning out their lights and falling asleep. And I'd sort of finished my meal and I was picking up my wife's meal. And I just suddenly thought like, oh, I feel awful. And it was, I think it was the 4th or the 5th of January, uh, 2014. And it was a Saturday. And I said, on Monday morning, everything changes. And I went, I just went cold turkey. I went one extreme to the other. Uh, I started eating really well. I stopped drinking. I changed my habits. I changed my lifestyle. And unbeknownst to me in that moment when I made that decision, I changed the the trajectory of my entire life um, with that one decision on the airplane on the way home. And And that was it? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> that was it, that one decision. And I've always believed that, you know, we have that ability to change the course of our lives for, for good or bad with split decisions we make. And I think it only takes a second to make a decision, but it's it's the commitment to follow through with it that is the, the defining uh, characteristic. Because how many people say, okay, it's the new year coming up, I'm going to, you know, do this or do that for my new year's resolution. And a month down the line, they're back to where they were. All um, the time. 99.9% yeah. of those airplane epiphanies end up like that, right? And, Not, and I've so. had them before. I'd said to myself, yeah, I need to do this. I need to do that. But it it was just, that was the the time where I was like, no, I'm committed to it this time. Uh, do you know it, why it stuck that time? Like, what was different about it? Um, it's a good question, really. Yeah, I think coming up to being my 30th birthday, recently married, and obviously starting to think about a future life. And my wife and I, you know, before we even got married, talked about how we wanted to have a family and have children. And I guess in that moment, I just thought, what kind of father do I want to be? Do I want to be the dad who can't run around with his kids because he's out of breath after three steps? Uh, you know, what kind of role model do I want to be to my children? And I think when you reach a milestone birthday as well, it kind of makes you think, okay, I'm not 20 something anymore. You know, I can't just keep living this lifestyle. So I think that played into it as well. And I kind of had this idea, well, not this idea, but this thought of, well, if I don't do it now, it's never going to happen because it, it will always be too easy to just go back to how life was. So what was that first step after you made the decision? What happened on Monday morning? Um, I got a gym membership. <laughs> I go. cleaned out the fridge, <laughs> cleaned out the cupboards, told my wife if she's bringing any chocolate into the house to put it well away from where I might look. <laughs> And I bought a book, uh, I say a book, it's like a magazine book, and it was called The Men's Fitness 12-Week Body Plan, and it was my training Bible. It was basically meant to transform you from average Joe to magazine cover model in 12 weeks. Um, it took me 11 months, because I went through the book several times, and I still tried to balance it with a normal life, because it was 12 weeks of living like a monk. Like, do these training sessions. It told you what to eat, when to eat, when to train, how to train, for how many seconds on each repetition, everything. Wow. And I found it a little bit too uh, strict. So I sort of tempered it down a bit. So it took me 11 months to get there, but I ended up with the cover model physique. Um, I got featured by men's, by men's Health or Men's Fitness. I can never remember which one, but one of them featured me in the States with a little video about what I did and had like two and a half million hits in a week of this story, how I went from That's crazy. fat to wow. fit to this new life, really. Yeah. Uh, and that was the catalyst for everything that's followed. Because I got to the end of that 11 months and I had two thoughts. <laughs> First was, you know, there's more to life than looking good with your top off, as much as my wife might have disagreed at the time. <laughs> um, and second was, well, if I can do this, if I can transform my physique so dramatically, what else can I do? What What's my potential? Uh, and I it set me on this path of discovery, really, because I think that's what it is for me. Even today, with everything I'm doing, it's discovering what I'm capable of. 
Um, this is a very similar story to um, Dean Carnassus. Hey, yeah. Yeah. I've read who, his book. Yeah. <laughs> who, who uh, you know, had a very athletic upbringing and then sort of lost his way from that. And then he had a, the 30th birthday epiphany. So oh, that's right. He ran home from the bar. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, and, and then he ran, like he ran 30 miles that day. That's that right. Night, that's right. Like through that the night. night. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, but I never looked back. But the nope. transition didn't, he just didn't become a famous ultra runner overnight. I mean, he still had his day job and he had this like, it was a long journey, but he never let go of the fact that he was changed, right? Which is, it yeah. sounds very, very familiar. Well, first of all, it's very humbling to be mentioned in the same breath as, as, as Dean, because I mean, his story is incredible. And I look at some of the achievements he's recorded over the years and some of the runs, and they're just mind blowing. Yeah, <laughs> totally. But, yeah, Marcus, your story is incredible. Your story is incredible. Thank you. It yeah, is. Yeah, really. So 11 months later, you're on the cover of, you know, fitness whatever fitness guru <laughs> magazine and then what happens um then we were heading to the south of france down to the provence for uh christmas holidays because my folks had a house down there at the time and we were driving down and this is obviously before children yeah and growing up i'd always been fascinated by cycling watching the, the grand tours um, and, you know, this is when I was a little boy, you used to have like half an hour's highlights at 11.30 at night. You know, it wasn't mainstream then. And I used to stay up and watch the tours. And the very first big climb I ever saw on, on the highlights was Alpe d'Huez. Oh, yeah. And um, I always had this thing when I decided, OK, like if I can transform my physique, what else can I do? I was like, how difficult can it really be to cycle up one of those mountains? <laughs> Um, it turns out quite difficult. <laughs> I was like, it can't be that hard, can it? <laughs> so bear in mind, I'm just out of the gym. I'm 105 kilos. I'm 7% body fat. And I look like Donkey Kong sat on a bike. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's the middle of December. And we just so happened to be at the bottom of Alpe d'Huez uh, for a couple of nights uh, staying at this little jeet. And I said to my wife, do you mind if I cycle up there tomorrow and she said no nope, do do whatever you want so i had my bike with me it was a very old retro bmc steel framed thing <laughs> and i cycled up out duez and it was hands down one of the most ridiculously hard things i've ever done <laughs> at 105 kilos which is what is that that's 220 pounds yeah or more more than that it's more like 230 Whew. yeah yeah so um, and it was, it was ridiculously hard. <laughs> um, but I had this little voice in the back of my head that says, whatever you do, do not stop. You cannot stop until you reach the top. And my wife was driving ahead at points in the car, shouting out and cheering encouragement. I was the only cyclist on the road because it's the middle of December, the snow falling. Locals are looking at me like I've lost my mind. <laughs> and I remember reaching the top. And I got right up to the point where there's the sign to say it's the end of like the Alpe d'Huez, you know, on the Tour de France climb. And there was a thick layer of snow on the ground. My wife was there with the heaters on in the car and a bag of uh, chocolate croissants. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember being so tired. I couldn't speak to her and I couldn't eat. And for about 15 minutes, I just sat there. And as I got my breath back, I started to just feel this huge sense of euphoria at having achieved something and 
again, I had another sort of moment where I thought, well, okay, I've done the body transformation. I've proved to myself I can do something as crazy as cycling up out Duez straight from the gym. What's next? Um, because I was fascinated. You know, when I played rugby, it's a team sport. And you can play the best game of your life and you can still lose because of you're relying on everyone else. And I, I mean, that's one of the great things of it because you win and lose together. But equally, it's frustrating at times. And in cycling up out Duez, I realized it was either me or the mountain. I'm either good enough or I'm not. And I really liked that cutthroat approach to things whereby you know where you stand. Um, so I started looking up other challenges. <laughs> um, we got down to the, to, to the house in the south of France and I started just looking up bike races. And I, I'm an all or nothing kind of person. I don't see much middle ground. So I started Googling like world's toughest bike race and that mountain climbs. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden I found a series of challenges to start filling up the following year with. Um, and there was bike rides and again I had this fascination with mountain climbing so I thought how difficult can it be to climb a big mountain so I booked a trip to go and climb <laughs> also <laughs> pretty difficult yeah <laughs> so I booked uh trips to go and climb Mont Blanc in France and Mount Elbrus in Russia oh, with, incredible you know again with very limited mountaineering experience I just thought let's go and try it let's learn part of the Mont Blanc trip was to go and do a a skills course for three days before. So I wasn't completely naive and putting myself in danger. Um, and then I signed up for some bike races. I signed up for the Paris-Roubaix Sportif, not really yeah. understanding that Paris-Roubaix is like the most ridiculous thing that you could do. <laughs> that, that is on my bucket list. The, 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 um, I guess Sportif is what it's called, right? Yeah. yeah. But that's, the that looks so cool. And they they do every cobbled section. Have you done it, Tyler? Did you ever do yeah, the... I've done some sections, so, uh, but I've never done the race, no. no. Yeah, yeah, you're probably wise one not to have done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, my teeth would like uh, vibrate out of my head. Well, what, what yeah. year did you do that in, Marcus? Because that was, that was uh, pre-gravel pre bike, right? Like that's... Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, well, well before the, the, the what I'm, I'm into now. This was very much pure road riding then. So cobbles were very alien. That was 2015. Yeah, okay. so I mean, those like the bike changes in the last five years would certainly civilize a lot of those cobbles, but it just looks brutal. Yeah, and uh, it, it's one of those things where it sounds weird, but the faster and the harder you pedal on the cobbles, the better because you kind of skim across the top of them. Yeah, um, but then you've got 52 sections of cobbles, and some of them are 500 meters, and some are three kilometers. So you're doing like all out sprints on these cobbled sections. <laughs> And bear in mind, this was only four months after I did Alpe d'Huez. So I'm still a bodybuilder on a bike for all intents and purposes. Uh, you know, there was no structure to my training. I would just get on my bike and go and ride until I was tired and then I'd go home. Um, so I had no real uh, basis to be going to do a 175 kilometer ride with 52 kilometers of cobbles. It was madness. <laughs> that is awesome, though. Awesome. I didn't, I didn't know that you'd done that. That's really yeah. cool. So, so I did that, and then the other big bike ride I had in 2015 was called Tour de Mont Blanc, and it's uh, three, 330 kilometers with 8,000 meters of ascent in one day. And right. 
again, this was six months after I did Outdoors. So again, I'm still a bodybuilder on a bike. <laughs> and and unlike unlike um, unlike the cobbles, I mean, at least that's a relatively flat course, right? But then yeah. Blanc is lumpy. I mean, you're doing you said eight thousand meters, right? Eight thousand meters. So wow. what's that? You're like almost Everest. Oh, you're you're almost Everesting. You're Basically, almost Everesting. Yeah. Almost an Everesting in a day, and um, and on climbs that I've never even experienced before. You know, it makes Alpes look small. You know, you've got Grand Saint Bernard, Petit Saint oh, yeah. Bernard. Yeah, you know, those. those are cool. Yeah, they're twenty kilometer climbs. Yeah, like, they go on for like hours. <laughs> hours, hours. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, and I got I got to within fifty kilometers of the finish and had to abandon because I was just like I just physically could not go on. Um, and again, in that moment, as hard as it was to accept defeat, I learned a huge amount. And it was again a moment where I said, "Okay, you're either all in now or you give up on the cycling thing." And it was an all in moment. I said, "No, I'm going to go away. I'm going to learn how to train properly. I'm going to start." altering my diet so I can get rid of this upper body muscle that's useless for, for cycling. Uh, and it was the start of the sort of the cycling journey as well. So yeah, it was a big year, 2015. And then, like I say, I went to climb Mont Blanc and, uh, a few months later went out to Russia to climb Mount Elbrus. So it was, it was a crazy little period, but it was the start of this life of challenging myself and, Really, I think a lot of it comes down to the mindset side of it as well. And I think that's the thing I was fascinated in the most was physically I knew I could morph my body into different ways. But I think so much of what we believe we can do is centered around our mindset and both our mindset and how other people negatively can impact on it by telling us we can't do something. Totally. It, it took all... It takes a while to start to foster that belief in yourself that you can go and take on these challenges. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Your your belief that you can't do something is equally as powerful as your belief that you can. Yeah. There's, there's no I, doubt about that. And I was very fortunate growing up that after my parents split up, you know, my mum met someone else. My my, my stepdad, always, he's my dad. He has been for, for years now. And, but I grew up in an environment where my parents were hugely into personal development and positive growth and mindset and t taught me from a very young age that nothing's out of reach. You know, if I went home and I had this crazy idea that tell my mum I want to do this, she'll be like, that's great, but we need to make a plan. We need to set the goal. We need to manage expectations. We need to know how we're going to do it. And I saw her doing it as well in her own industry, you know, building her business and I saw her fail. And I think for me, that was one of the most important lessons growing up was seeing my parents fail and knowing that it was okay. And that actually failing is sometimes the best thing. And it wasn't even failing because to me, failing is quitting. You know, you yeah. fail when you right. stop trying. And to me, it was just watching my parents learn and knowing that you're going to have these setbacks along the way. It's not always going to be a smooth journey. But at the same time, you're going to learn from them. And yes, they're painful moments, but they give you so much more than the successes that you achieve. That's great. That's great. So what happened after 2015? Um, then it got really crazy. Okay. okay. <laughs> because I went in, 
in 2016, I signed up for a few more events. I did the Hort Route Alps. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's like that seven-day mini Tour de France thing for amateurs, and it was incredible. Um, uh, in the interim, 2015, um, our little boy was born, Harrison. So that was thrown into the mix as well. So I became a dad. So that added a, a whole new element to life. Uh and in 2016, I did the Hort route, and my, my mindset then was like, well, what is next? Because once you've done the Hort route, the next logical step in my mind is you go and ride a grand tour, just doing it on your own. <laughs> um, and then I was thinking, okay, so 2017, I'll ride the Tour de France. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'll ride the 2017 Tour de France route. And then... I was thinking, okay, if you do that in 2017, in 2018, the logical step is to do the Tour de France, the Giro d'Italia, and the Vuelta to España. Um, <laughs> again, this is my logic, not most people's logic. So then I thought, well, what's the point of doing one Tour de France, just have to do it again the next year? Why don't you just do all three Grand Tours in 2017? <laughs> wow. Um, which, again, I don't really think I fully understood the magnitude of the, the task I was setting myself. Uh, but that was the goal I set. I said, okay, in 2017, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ride the Giro, the Tour, and the Vuelta one day in front of the pro races. So, in effect, three grand tours in the space of four or five months. Wow. Because you did them in May, July, September, like they normally would be, right? Yeah, exactly. Because, yeah, back then it was exactly as they asked. So it was the whole, most of May. And then July into August, and then I think there was about three and a half weeks, four weeks off, and then the Vuelta. So, at the end of August into September, and uh, what was that like? Oh, I mean, you're really grand tours, but it's very different yeah. when you're doing it actually in a peloton with the full support crew and everything. But oh yeah, it was mind blowing. It was, I mean, each one in its own right was a completely unique experience, and they all had different elements to them. Uh, but it was, I, I think it's only now when I look back on it, I realize quite without wanting to sound egotistical, quite how incredible the achievement was. Because I think there's fewer than 65 people, pros included, who have done all three in the same year before. And again, I wasn't racing them, so I'm not emptying the tank every day, but you know, I'm still pushing myself. It's still a, a big undertaking. And it's only when I look back now and it's all sunk in that I, I sort of think, I can't believe I did that. It was crazy <laughs> so when um, you get so when you get to go to starts and stuff like that like you are you you just like if you wrote a short prologue you would just you would just ride the short prologue and then you'd and then you'd start preparing for the next day yeah so the first two the Giro and the and the tour I did um with four other guys we doing it for charity um so we had a little support network we had a physio we had a mechanic we had a like a guy who was a kind of the director sportif who would drive around making sure you know everything in the van right. and things and we'd get to hotels and then there was a complete disagreement on the fundraising side of things at the end of the tour and basically they said sorry you're not riding the Vuelta with us <laughs> so um I was like well I haven't come this far not to achieve my goal um so I had to was like well, what, what am I going to do and my mum jokingly said you should just rent a motorhome go with Kim and Harrison my wife and little boy my little boy was not even two at the time and just drive around Spain they can be your support vehicle and you cycle in. there you go <laughs> so that's what we did completely so, naively <laughs> and sorry your wife's name is Kim 
Yes, Kim. Yeah. So I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when you went to Kim and said, hey, how about yeah. I spend nine weeks this summer and <laughs> we have a toddler and I'm going to spend nine weeks of the summer out riding these grand tours. <laughs> she sounds pretty cool. She sounds really cool. You know, she's been, we're, 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 we're chalk and cheese. You know, I'm six foot three, um, you know, crazy mad adventurer. She's five foot two, uh, British born Chinese woman who's just incredible. Um, loves the outdoors, but just thinks I'm nuts for doing the things I do. But she is the rock in all of this. She has supported me from day one and is without her, none of this would be possible. Um, so I, I have to thank, you know, it's funny because often people see me in the limelight doing these things, my features in magazines and going to these talks, but you know, they don't realize that there's a massive support network behind of people who don't always get, you know, visibility. And, and at the front of that queue is, is my wife and she is, she's a really incredible woman, but, uh, but she's also up for, for crazy adventures, which has always been brilliant. So normally it's, you know, I'm like, so how do you fancy doing this? And by the way, I'm taking the bike with us. And, <laughs> but, but the interesting thing for, for the Spanish one was I'd been away for the other two. So when I said to her, why don't we all do it together? I think she was just glad that I wasn't going to be away from her and our little boy again. So, yeah. yeah. But equally, we'd never driven a motorhome before. And as I said, she's, <laughs> she's five foot two. So she had to drive a 27-foot motorhome oh, man. <laughs> and look after an almost two-year-old toddler and be my support vehicle whilst I ride three and a half thousand kilometers around Spain. <laughs> and for our North American listeners, I just want to emphasize how different driving a motorhome around Europe is than driving oh, yeah. around North America. They are narrower <laughs> roads. They're busier roads. It's totally different. And when so you throw in a huge undertaking. Fact, yeah, and then when you throw in the fact that she was going over all the climbs with me and we went up like Alto de Anglerou and some of these oh, wow. crazy, we didn't get the motorhome to the top of there. My mum had come out at this stage and, and rented a car. So they followed up in the car, but she came over all of these crazy mountain passes with me. She'd be at the top with fresh bottles of water. She'd have the gas stove on making cups of tea when it's raining and hot meals. And it was incredible, but they both bought into it as well. My little boy was at the age where he, his responsibility was always wanted to fill up my water bottles. Um, and having them along for that last one was one of those moments again, where we look back and say, Hey, I can't believe we did it because it was so naive to just rent a motorhome 10 days later, drive to Spain and start cycling, not knowing what we were doing really. But we look back on that with the fondest memories now going, we did it. But again, it proves that you can do anything. Sometimes yeah, you just need to take that step. But I think sometimes when you overthink things and you try and plan too much, you end up coming up with all these barriers. You go, well, actually, we can't do it because of this, this, and this. And actually, I think sometimes you just need to jump in and start swimming. Yeah, yeah. Make yeah. the decision go. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a balance between preparedness and, and talking yourself out of stuff, for sure. And equally, you don't want to be reckless and crazy but sometimes you do just have to take the plunge and what's the worst that could happen things don't work out but at least we gave it a go it's better than sitting at home thinking what if yeah wow. that's there's a great lesson in there that's like becoming a parent like you could always <laughs> be more patient you could always have more money you could always have more help but you know you just do it and 
yeah. as you figure it out, right? So yeah. and that's what you guys did on that trip. And I think so, with being, being a parent, you keep figuring it out for the rest of your life. <laughs> because think. it's this dynamic thing. You never have it pinned down, right? Because they change and you change yeah. and you all need to fit into each other's lives and, and work it all out, right? Yeah. So you've also done an, uh, a serious amount of writing too, right? So you've yes. written for a whole bunch of different publications. Are you still doing that right now? Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the things that's, I think, why I've always had the support of, of Kim because as well as doing all of these rides, I've written about them for magazines, you know, in the UK and Australia and Europe. And it's kind of been my way to, to fund things because I was never really in a position to have a huge amount of money to just go and do these things and fund it myself. So I was like, well, if I'm writing about it, I can get people to a pay me to do it, but then also get people to provide a bike because they're going to get coverage, clothing, PR companies who represent travel agencies, uh, um, tourist boards are going to say, okay, we'll, we'll get on board as well. So it was, I had to be creative, but it was my way of basically being able to fund my dream life. Uh, and I still write today and I love it. I love, I love storytelling. I love sharing stories with people. And I think it's a, again, dates back to when I was a little boy, because I think you learn so much through stories, don't we? When we're young, that's how we are taught things, through the telling of stories. And I read a lot of books when I was younger. And when people write, there's a way that they can transport you to where they are without you never having been there. And oh, that's totally, what, yeah. That's what I've always tried to do with my writing, is take people on a journey to enable them to maybe be in my footsteps for, for, for whatever trip I'm doing, because some people might never get the opportunity to do some of the things I've done, but by reading the articles, maybe they can get a little flavor of it. So the, so the writing continues now. I think one day I'd love to write a book about all of this madness. Um, <laughs> but I think I'm one of these people who I believe you need to live a full, full life before you write a book. I hate it when I see sports people at 21, 22 releasing books and then five years later release another. I get it. They do it because their agents say, look, you can make loads of money if you do it this way. But I think you do one book and you nail it. There you go. So, there you go. so how, did the, how did the pandemic impact your, your year and your adventures? I'm sure you like a lot of the people that we host on this podcast. You had plans that, that weren't able to come together. It massively impacted me uh, in the first instant negatively and now sat here speaking to you guys today, it, it, it's impacted my life very positively because of the quirks of the, the industries I sort of work in. Uh, first of all, I mean, every event that I had planned um, was cancelled. I do travel journalism as well. Everything was just gone. In the space of 48 hours, I lost about in dollars, I don't know, about $24,000, $25,000 worth of work just oh. in a weekend because everything just went, no, we can't do it. Yeah, uh, yeah. And nobody at that point, nobody was being creative. They were panicked and just shutting things down, right? Yeah, but because I'm self-employed and I work for myself, I wasn't fortunate enough to be furloughed where I know I've got a job to go back to or maybe I don't, but at least I'm being paid you know, every week because by my employers, so I had to be creative and started looking at different ways to monetize what I do. Um, and I was also very fortunate that in between, at the end of lockdown, I had one big commission, which was to cycle from, uh, in the UK, there's a famous end-to-end -end ride called uh, 
John O'Groats to Land's End or you do it Land's yeah. End to John O'Groats. It's from the most northerly point up in Scotland right the way down to the bottom of Cornwall. And most people go a very direct route and it takes them maybe five days and it's about 800 miles. But my commission was to take the most scenic route you could possibly imagine, go everywhere. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, so I, I did 2,600 kilometers and 39,000 meters of climbing uh, in 13 days. And again, Kim came along in the motorhome and <laughs> as my little boy who's had his birth, who's five now, but our little girl who was two at the time, well, she's two still, they came along and followed and supported for that one as well. Um, so I had that one big commission and that was kind of my saving grace for the short term. But off the back of, just rewinding a little bit, off the back of that Vuelta Espana trip, I got into the motorhome industry by complete mistake. I always thought motorhoming was for your grandparents when you're retired, kids have left home. But we went away to Spain in this motorhome and we just fell in love with it because you can go anywhere and you've got everything you need. And you still have this sense of freedom, like you're not like living luxury. We've always loved backpacking. And... I wrote a couple of articles for a motorhome magazine. They they enjoyed them. And fast forward to where we are now, and I'm now a brand ambassador for one of the UK's biggest motorhome uh, manufacturers. I don't know if I'm allowed to mention them by name, but... Um, That's awesome. That, that is awesome. awesome. So these guys are called Bailey of Bristol, and now we drive their motorhomes. We we share our lifestyle to show people that you know you can have a... An amazing lifestyle. And the way that relates to the pandemic in the UK is people still want to travel. I think it's an, an, an this urge. People want to get away from home. And in a motorhome, you've got your own secure little bubble because you've got everything you need on board, you know, and off you can go. And we've been very fortunate in that, that we are able to get out and go and travel and, and see the world and do things. Um, yeah, we we did the same thing. We don't have, it's not a motorhome, but we have a, a towable rv like a hard wall trailer and yeah. it's comfortable and it's it's big and we as soon as as soon as we got all shut down and schools were closed and everything we we're like let's just rent a place by the lake a lot for you know the summer and that's what we did and yeah it was, so there's silver linings right yeah and then i just got creative because all the events got cancelled so i was like well why don't i just do my own things so i <laughs> i ended up doing three different everestings um wow. in the space of so I did one Everesting. A week later, I did the John O'Groats to Land's End trip. And then in the six weeks after that, I did another two Everestings, which were both gravel Everestings. Oh, um, wow. Ouch. Wow. Yeah. Ouch. And, and tra traditional Everesting, like one hill up down? Oh, totally. Full on traditional. Um, the first two were little short climbs. The road Everesting was 1.1 kilometers. And I did 95 oh. reps. <laughs> <laughs> And the uh, the gravel one was 1.2, and I did 87 reps. <laughs> uh, and then the last gravel everesting, which was for a big feature for a magazine, was a 10k climb. I think it's the second longest gravel climb in the UK, oh, and wow. it's not ideal for everesting. You know, there's a long flat section, but it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But you had a huge kilometer total then. It was 320, yeah. I think, by the end, like yeah. 20 hours of riding. It was, it was an ordeal. <laughs> did, you enjoy, how, did you enjoy that one with the longer climb more than the, the other ones? Did you have more know. fun? What would the fun, fun meter say? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but 
Pete's going to do one, so we got to figure one something day. out for you, Pete. Yeah, one yeah. day. I was telling Tyler that I'm having a hard time finding an, a, a suitable hill where I don't need to ride 300 kilometers. But yeah. I also can't, I can't go up a 12% grade over and over and over again either. Right. Yeah. I need that kind of sweet spot. So, and that's the thing you have to find the right hill for you because obviously I'm, I'm 90 kilos now, so I'm still big when it comes to climbing. So anything too steep, you know, if it's a few reps, it's fine. Cause I can just power up it, use my get up and down. But when you're, you know, laying siege to the mountain and you're doing it a hundred times, it, it, it's too steep. So that first one was, was too steep. Um, yeah, yeah. But equally, there is a a perverse sense of enjoyment. I love the suffering element of climbing, and it it sounds maybe a little bit weird, but we live in an age where we talk a lot about mindfulness and meditation um, and having this empty mind. And I find climbing this way of being able to completely quiet my mind because. Tyler, you must be able to relate to this. When you're on like a long climb and you're pushing at your limit and everyone's limit is their limit, doesn't matter how fast you're going, there's no other thought in your mind. Yeah. You're not thinking about like what I've got to do tonight or what chores need doing or what work deadlines I've got. I'm just in that moment and there is no yeah. other thought. And for me, it's kind of like this, this meditation and, yeah. you know, there's other ways to, to achieve it. But for me, it's going up and down a climb all day long. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. So, so and, it, and it's true. There's a very meditative quality to endurance sports. Um, yeah. Particularly when you're really like in it, right? Yeah. And I guess that's why I love ultra cycling now as well, because you can go off and do like a thousand kilometer bike race and Again, you, you're just trying to do it as fast as you can, minimal sleep, and you're just in just in that moment constantly. And it's it's for me, it's it, it's my escapism from the world. And I love being a dad. I love being a husband. I love everything I do. But I think we all need to have something that's for us. We need to have our focus and passion because if you if you're not happy on yourself how can you be the best person you need to be as a dad how can you be the best husband how can you be the best person in your job if you've not got that happiness inside you um and for me cycling gives me that it gives me the ability because I, I get up at five o'clock in the morning and i go and ride for two hours do my training and i come home for family breakfast and because I'm away from the family at times, when I'm with them, I'm with them. I'm 100% in that moment because that's my time with them. And likewise, when I'm with my wife, it's my time with her. But yet when I'm on my bike, the world just gets switched off. And I love, like, we've, we've hosted all kinds of different people with different situations on the podcast. But I'm always most fascinated and inspired by the people who strike the balance between work, family, and adventure. Cause that's, that's my world too. Right. And I find that that's the most, um, and it's, it's the hardest, it's the easiest. If you're, if you're a, a single 25 year old guy and you've got 40 hours a week to do whatever the hell you want, that's different, right? Yeah, totally. And I, I look at the ultra endurance world of running, cycling, all these different things. And the one, the people who inspire me the most are the people who are doing it around everything else. I mean, in a dream world, 
you know, you don't have any other responsibilities, but I do this alongside everything else. And yes, I've managed to weave it into the other things I do, but uh, ultimately it's a part of my life. It's not my entire life. And it, it's interesting because being a parent now, I also think it's a great part of what I do for my children to, to witness. We get, we have been all over the world doing ultra racing and my kids have come to watch me and my little boy has seen me, he's seen me do really well in races and seen me cross the finishing line in the top five of big races. He's seen me fail and fall short in races and he's learning from me. And it's amazing now because he's five and he, he's got a bike like because he wants to go out riding at night with me. You know, he's planning our first bike packing adventure and where we can wild camp and we go out on walks now and he's like, daddy, we could sleep under that bush there or there'll be a rock and he's like, we could sleep in there. Um, That's awesome. And it's just amazing to see the impact of what I do on their lives and to show them that they can extend their boundaries and their beliefs of what's possible. And I think it's enabled me to be a better parent following the path that I have followed. Not to say that other paths prevent you from being a great parent, but it's really enabled me to reflect on who I am and how I want to inspire them, really. That's awesome. So what is what is 20? Oh, sorry, can I just answer your question of which gravel? Sorry, I digressed a bit. Which gravel, uh, which everything was the most fun? Yeah, yeah, go back to that. Um, I think second one in the woods on my own was brilliant because I just went, I parked the motorhome at the top. My wife was away with the kids and I just went and did it. No one really knew what I was up to. I had a free weekend and I just thought, I've got the weekend to myself. I'll go gravel everything, as you do. Um, sure, why and, not? <laughs> and I loved it. I really enjoyed that one. And there's always a point in everything where you think there's no way I'm going to finish this. You've been riding for like eight hours um, and you're halfway through and you think there's no way I can do that again. And then you get to the point where you know you're going to finish. And it's just amazing because you can ride the last two hours knowing it's going to hurt, but I know I'm going to finish this and it's going to be amazing. And then the last Everesting was brilliant because we were in the middle of nowhere. And to do it, we had to camp out in the motorhome. Um, I went with a photographer friend. And at the end of it, we had a big log fire. We had cold beers. And it was just the best way to finish an Everesting was sat at like 11 o'clock at night in the middle of the mountains with a fire and a cold beer. It was like perfect. Because <laughs> normally on the other two Everestings, I finished and within half an hour, I'm back home and I'm in dad mode. <laughs> Right, um, oh. and yeah. and your kids, your kids don't understand that you've just ridden for twenty hours. They're like, "Come on, daddy, let's play with the trains." It's like, "Can I just have one minute, please?" <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Okay, gravel Everesting. So yeah, there you go, Pete. I think you should do that. Maybe <laughs> I could probably so, find a steeper road. Yeah, yeah. The uh, problem Mark with gravel Everesting is the descending. Because uh, yeah, right. on the road, obviously you've got to pay attention, but on the road, you can kind of switch off a little bit because you don't have to look out for potholes. You don't have to be constantly wrestling the bike. So your body gets, uh, your body and your mind get just a little chance to switch off. Whereas with gravel Everesting, the descending is, is a more of an effort than the going up. So you never ever have a break from right. the physical and the mental demands unless you're off the bike. And then when you're off the bike, you're not riding. So you're just waste, not wasting time, but you know, you're just extending the day. Um, 
So if you've never done one before, I'd definitely say go road first of all. <laughs> Good advice. Go, definitely appreciate it. So Marcus, yeah, what's what's next? I, I'm looking forward to hearing what's what do you got? What's on the docket? Um, I got a few things planned. Can you, uh, okay, maybe you can't talk about them yet. I don't know. No, no, I can. I, oh. I, I I'm kind of in that position, like I guess a lot of people at the moment, where. Um, there's the promise or there's the hope of events next year, but we still don't know right. how they might look. I guess I'm fortunate in the, in the sense of ultra cycling because they're not mass participation events. It's a little bit easier for organizers to, to run an event where there's maybe 50, 60 people. Um, because by nature of doing a thousand kilometer bike race, you build in social distancing. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Yeah. So, so, so I, but again, there's still a little bit of, uh, you know, we've got to see what happens over the coming months. But to get around that, I've got one of my own challenges. Uh, the Everesting has developed into different challenges now where you can do the traditional up and down one, or you can do what's called a, a 10K roam. So you've got to ride a minimum of 400 kilometers do 10,000 meters of climbing in under 36 hours. Wow. Uh, so Ooh. I've got one of those planned for the Alps uh, in June, which is going to be good fun. <laughs> and then, Ouch. and then I'm I'm really focusing on sort of the gravel side of things and the adventure cycling uh, um, into next year. There's some really nice events in the UK, slightly shorter ones, like three, four hundred kilometer rides. Um, and then, in the very, very immediate future, we're we're in winter here now, or going into winter. And I've got a series of winter bike packing expeditions coming nice, up. Nice, nice. So I've partnered with a with a brand here, uh, an online brand called Trekit, who provide mountaineering equipment. So they've enabled me to come at the bike packing thing from whether you walk into the mountains or you hike into the mountains, you need the same equipment. If you're in the mountains, you need a really good tent, you need a good sleeping bag, you need a good jacket, you need your waterproofs. So they've given me that sort of knowledge and equipment and then i've got the bike packing side of it with sort of the bike bags and i'm i want to show to people that the adventure doesn't stop when the sun goes down or that you know it gets cold or it gets wet so i'm heading off into the mountains actually in two days time uh for my first one and then just a series of of going off into the mountains for some projects for some magazines and just being at one with nature i think yeah you guys might be able to relate to this, but more, more so than ever, I've always loved being in the outdoors, but because of lockdown, because of the restrictions on our freedom this year, I've had an even greater desire just to switch off the phone, to switch off the notifications, to get away from the constant demands from the attention and, and, and requirements of, of life at home, uh, not in terms of my family, but work and everything, and just go and be in, in the wilderness. You know, I'm not even going to take a Kindle or a book with me just to go and to let nice. my mind be at peace. And I think it's really important that people have that opportunity and, and do that. Just uh, I think we live in like this world of instant everything. We want every piece of information like in a short message. You know, no one wants to read a book. No one wants to read a feature. We've got constant noise. We're always at the whim of other people's opinions on social media, what we're feeding our minds that we struggle to switch off and the thought of sitting still for 15 minutes with nothing to do freaks people out. <laughs> totally. 
And I think it's a skill that we need to retrain ourselves to do. And that for me is a part of what I'm wanting to achieve with these winter bikepacking things. It's this concept of like seeking solitude and putting myself in a situation where I have no choice but to connect with myself. That's awesome. I, I need outside time. Like I need food and water right now through this pandemic. Yeah. You know, it's just like critically important for my, yeah. my mental well-being. I mean, so the hardest I, thing I always is, thought of that stuff as like it's for my physical health, but now it's it's as much for my head as it is for my body. Yeah. And 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 it, and it is it's it's that mental release. And, you know, the hardest period for me, I've just had three weeks off the bike. I've just got back into training last week and my coach said, no, you need three weeks off. Just don't don't ride. And I still got out walking and doing various things, but I didn't realize how much I needed that outside release as to when I got back on the bike last week. Yeah. Um, so I have so no, one more question. Of course. For the, for the person who's in that, that third, that staring down their 30th birthday or whatever it is, and they've just eaten their way around a country <laughs> and they're in that place of they like, want to make a change. What advice would you give to that person? Uh, be compassionate with yourself. Don't beat up on yourself and focus on the negatives of how you got to where you are but to know that within you is this amazing potential to become a better person, but to also know that it's, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a, a journey that you go on and you will evolve as that journey develops. Uh, you will learn about yourself, um, but take it easy on yourself. If things don't go perfectly, don't, think you've failed and don't get into that negative spiral of of you know that we we all need to be our best cheerleader we all need to support ourselves there's enough people out there in this world who will knock you down who will tell you you can't do things without you doing it to yourself and just to to love yourself and to believe that you can stand on the top of your mountain, wherever that mountain may be, whether it's a literal mountain or a metaphorical mountain, you can get there, but it's, it, it's going to take time. That's awesome advice. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, very, very well beautiful. put. Marcus, thank you so much for joining us, man. What a pleasure. What a great uh, chat. It's been, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you guys. I always <clears throat> come into these conversations not knowing how they'll evolve and, and things. And, I always love speaking and with like-minded people. So thank you so much for, for allowing me this opportunity to share my story and a, and a few words that hopefully can help inspire somebody else. And if one person listening to this gets the motivation to go and make a, a lasting change in their life, then I feel like it's been a worthwhile conversation. That's all we hope to do with it, right? Just impact somebody when we can. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. We're going to follow along closely with, uh, with yeah. your adventures and as the world begins to open up again over the next year or two years, whatever, I hope our paths cross and we can ride some bikes. Absolutely. If you guys ever want to do something crazy, you, you know where to find it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, Marcus, I'm just going to throw it out there. There's a pretty cool route here in North America. It starts up by Pete's house and finishes uh, on the Mexican border. It's called the Great Divide Mountain Bike Route. Okay. I think you might enjoy that, you know. We and Cam and kids can come along too. You know, they can meet you. Uh, they can leapfrog ahead. But uh, it's, it's a pretty pretty it, cool route. Yeah. Cool. We'll I, to... 
I'll check. definitely have to take a look into that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Google it. Great Divide Mountain Bike Road. It's uh, cool. 4,400 kilometers. One other thing, if I'm allowed to, if, if people want to follow the journey, they want yeah. to see where I'm heading next year, yeah. you can find yeah. me on, on Instagram and it's at Marcus Leach Global. Uh, and I try to share my journey on there um, as well as links to the articles I write and the stories that I share. So, yeah, be, be sure to, to follow and, and see where the next year takes me. Great. That's Great. awesome. We'll make sure to uh, make sure to tag you when we launch the episode, too. Perfect. Thank you again, guys. It's been a Thanks real pleasure. Thanks again, Marcus. And Our yeah, pleasure. Have a great Thanks. holiday season. Yeah, yeah you, too. you too. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. Care. See ya. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Another huge thank you to Marcus for spending time with us and sharing with us his very inspirational story. He is really just getting started, so we hope that you can follow along with some of his adventures as we will. Like a lot of our guests, this is definitely somebody that I hope uh, I have the opportunity to ride a bike with at some point. Um, thank you everybody for listening. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, we are having a ton of fun doing what we do and we're making big plans to grow and bring you lots of more awesome conversations in 2021, but we're not done for the year. We will be back very soon.